this is the year of outreach for Grace. As we prayed as a staff and the leadership team, the elders and deacons, we became convinced and convicted that, that we needed an emphasis on outreach. And so this whole year, we will be constantly coming back to the themes of how we can reach out to the community around us. Uh, well, this church has always done missions from its very beginning. Uh, missionaries, sending missionaries was a huge part of who we are, and we'll always do it because it's a matter of obedience to God. But, but it's also important that we engage the world around us, isn't it? And, and so we're going to be talking throughout the year. Now, every sermon's not going to be on it. We're going to do 1 Corinthians. We're going to do all kinds of stuff. Some of it you don't even expect, but frankly, some of it I haven't figured out yet. So that's why you don't expect it. Um, but, but we will constantly be reminding each other of the opportunities God is sending in each of our lives to tell others about Jesus, to serve them, to do good in the name of Christ. But we decided to kick it off with a five-sermon series, and, and that's, I'll be concluded that today. The first one, I just talked about we as a church, what we do and what, what God has called us to do, and, and that's where we focused in on the issue of outreach and how important that is and how perhaps that's the area we're weakest in as a community. Then the next week, Lucas spoke on, when I wrote these out, because I'm from the 60s, I called it All You Need Is Love, because... There's the Bible, the Beatles, and, and that was a little tiny joke. Just simmer down. Um, someone's saying, uh-uh, it's the stones. Anyway, and then, and then the 25-year-old saying, who are those people? But, but um, all you need is love because the issue of evangelism always comes back to motivation. Uh, it's not about keeping score. It's not about winning something. It, it, is, it is simply caring enough about other people that we want to tell them the most important thing we know in our own lives, right? I mean, if the gospel is true, if, if Jesus is the sole answer for the brokenness of humanity, if the only way to spend eternity in the presence of God is through belief and confession of Christ, then how can we claim to know and love people and not tell them about it. The Scripture says that that was the motivation for Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him would not perish and have everlasting life. The first and second great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what is more loving than to tell someone about Jesus? So the motivation for all of this always comes back to love. And that, that should shape the way we say it, the way we respond to people. And it also drove us to the next point. And that was the one I did on doing good is good too. Sometimes I've been around those Christians that almost were afraid of doing good in society because it would look like we're substituting that for the gospel. No, doing good is how we live out the grace of God in our lives, right? It's, it's the natural outcome of having experienced God's goodness is that we would respond to others by doing good as we have opportunity to share the love of Christ. How will they know Jesus loves them if we don't show that love? And so historically, when you read the Gospels, you, you see Jesus reaching out to, to the powerless, the poor, the, the, the orphan, the widow, as well as the up-and-outer, the Nicodemus, 
or two Nicodemuses, Nicodemi, I don't know. But at any rate, he, he continually is actively involved in, in doing kind things to other people because that demonstrates the very nature of the gospel. And, and so some of what we do is living out that and being kind, right? Being good. Because it demonstrates the very character of God. Then last week, Kevin did a great job of, of pointing out that when Jesus started his ministry, the ministry began at home. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and other most parts of the world. In other words, it always began here. It begins with my neighbor. In fact, the Jews asked, who is my neighbor? And he said, well, it's the guy who has need right under your foot. And oh, by the way, the Samaritan is the one who saw it, not you righteous ones, right? One of my favorite passages related to this is, is the healing of the Gerasene demoniac, the, the man who had a legion of demons in the land of the Gerasenes. And after he is healed by Jesus, he tries to get in the boat with the apostles to go back across the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says to him, and I'm sorry, this is King James. It's just the way I memorized it as a 14-year-old. Go home and tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you. What an incredibly powerful statement. Now go home and tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you. You know what I love about that? You don't need no theology degree to do that. One of the blessings of this church is our tie to Dallas Seminary. We've got all these seminary grads. They're everywhere. They, you know, they're everywhere. You know, you can tell them they're tired. Um, one of the curses of this church is we have seminary grads everywhere. And so you almost get the impression that if you hadn't gone and studied, you know, seminary somewhere and hadn't sat under all these big names and, and, and your knowledge of Greek goes beyond your fraternity, if, if <laughs> and Hebrew in a deli, um, it, you almost get the impression that you, you, you don't have a right to talk if that's, but you know the great thing about go home and tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you? You're an expert on that. No one in the world can deny to you your experience with Christ. That's the reason Jesus said it. And interestingly, even in a postmodern age, that, that, is the, that is the ultimate source of truth in postmodern thought, my personal experience. And no one can deny that. And you're the world's greatest expert on what God has done for you. And, and you don't need no stinking theology degree to do that. You just say, can I tell you what Jesus has done for me? And it's amazing what God can do. Um, today I'm going to answer the objections. When I first wrote this series, oh, that was kind of, when I first, I'm sorry, I get easily distracted. Um, when I first wrote out this series, I was going to make this one about faith. How do we trust God to do evangelism for us? And as I studied it, and yes, I do study. I study, okay? I study. That's the other half day a week I work. Um, no, as I studied it, the passages all kept going, pushing me toward a really significant subject, and that's why we can have faith in our proclamation of the gospel. If you'll turn to John chapter 15, John 14 through 16, th those three chapters are in the middle of Jesus' last week on earth. Uh, it's, 
It's an incredibly powerful passage. You've memorized, if you've been around the church long, you've memorized parts of it. And in John 15, Jesus acknowledges that it's going to be hard. I understand, we as a staff understand that when we speak of evangelism, many of us have a a little bit of clenching in our gut because many of us have experienced hostility, right? Uh, I'll never forget, I I went to a camp as a kid that, and I won't go into that today, but, but one of the kids there that was very secular looked at me and said, are you one of those holy rollers? You know, it, it, that isn't the way to start a great friendship. You know what I mean? In other words, he's communicating, are you one of those? And most of us, whether in the workplace or even in our family, have experienced that, that negative response just by virtue of our claiming to know Christ. And, and sometimes it's outright hostility, but sometimes it's subtle. But, but there's a fear that can develop over that, Right? Well, I want you to know that there's reason for that fear. Look at John 15, verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, world in this usage in the New Testament means all that worldly system that is alienated from God. It, 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 it survives apart from God. God isn't in any way a part of the function. And he said, if, if this world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. By the way, some Christians in, at times will be tempted to try to be so much like the world that the world will love us. That's a dangerous thing to do. Now, we don't need to be obnoxious. We don't need to go out of our way to be hated by the world. Hear me, I'm not saying that. Um, but, but, but there is a danger in trying too hard to be loved by the world because the world is uncompromising. What the world will tell you is, I will love you when you're like me. The world will tell you, I will accept you when you accept what I accept, when you embrace what I embrace. And, and, and when you choose not to, Regardless of all the nice talk about everybody being free to choose what they want, the reality is that oftentimes will bring hatred. Jesus himself said it. The world hated me, it will also hate you. If if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world because I've chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecute, you know, sometimes we act like if I was, I can can be so charming that I can overcome the prejudice against the gospel. Do we really think we can be more charming than the Son of God? You ever thought about that? He can heal people of their sickness. He can feed people in their hunger. He could love people in a supernatural way. And yet we think that we somehow can love so well that we will overcome difficulty in a way that he couldn't. Jesus takes a pen and pricks that bubble. You're not any greater than me. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. 
they will treat you this way because of my name. The Apostle Paul says the cross is a stumbling block, for they don't know the one who sent me. We're from a different family. We speak a different language. There, there is a natural tension there. And so one of the reasons we get nervous about sharing a faith is because we intuitively know there's a disconnect. Now, hear me. Does not mean you have to be obnoxious. In fact, that's certainly inconsistent with the way Jesus responded to other people. But, but it does mean that Jesus knows that there will be opposition. And, and, and when we share our faith, expecting some opposition is normal. Some of you are thinking, okay, I'm out of here. This is not fun. Now, let me ha- hurry to say, we don't know persecution the way people in the rest of the world do. I mean, uh, we have lived in one of the most remarkable eras, in one of the most remarkable places in all the history of humankind. I mean, uh, it, it, we have to step back and thank God for how remarkable this has been, that, that Christianity has been so embraced. Now, sometimes the veneer has been very thick. Sometimes it's been more show than real. But, but we don't know persecution as a people the way they have known it in major parts of the world. We had a group of women here that prayed regularly for the persecuted church. And when you start reading the stories of the persecuted church, it will humble you. The the reality is that the genocide against Christians in the 20th century is is mind-boggling. In the Middle East and Africa and other parts of Asia, it's, it's frightening what Christians go through when they embrace Jesus. But, but, but that is not deny the reality that, that there, there, there's risk in calling yourself a follower of Christ. And Jesus said, of course there is. They didn't like me. Why would they like you? Well, so so is, is there any hope? Is that it? It's interesting that he starts the paragraph there. Then look with me down. I don't have time to go through it all. Verse 26. But when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. He introduces the idea of the counselor. Uh, Different translations, comforter, advocate, counselor. Uh, There are all kinds of um, pleader, a Greek speaker in our first service said. My favorite picture of what that word means, and I know this is going to scare some of you, is attorney. Uh, Yesterday we had an incredibly sad day. We had a memorial service for a 23-year-old young man who grew up at Grace and fell into addiction and died of a heroin overdose. And, and I, you know, it's one of those times you think, this is horrible, but at least we know where he is. At least we have Jesus. It's one of those times that resets your worldview, you know? You kind of reminded how blessed you are and how much the gospel means to you. Incredible time. But both of the parents of this young man are, are attorneys, and so the room was full of attorneys, 
you could smell it. I mean, it was, it was an amazing thing. I mean, they, they were, and several attorneys in here are grinning at me. Um, we, we, we have a lot of fun at the expense of attorneys, and, and it's so deserved. But the, the <laughs> excuse me, unfair. Um, actually, it's an incredibly powerful term, and I'll tell you when you appreciate attorneys is when you need one. When you go into a court and you realize these people have rules I don't know, and they speak a language I do not understand. And, and they have means of, of defending and, and advocating for me that I cannot in any way do. Suddenly, you realize how grateful you are for that role. I mean this sincerely. That when, when, you, when you step into a situation where you are so obviously out of your depth, and if you've ever been in a court and you're not an attorney, you are. And, and you realize, I could lose this before I even get started here. But for this person who is my advocate, who, who understands what's going on, who's done the hard work in the background, and, and who is there to fight for me in this incredibly difficult situation, and in that situation, you want to hug them but instead you pay their bill. Um, that's the hug they're looking for. Um, Jesus says, I will send someone who will do that for you in the hostile environment of the world. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? Jesus says, yeah, you're going to have trouble. The world hated me, they're going to hate you. But, but you know what's incredible? You're not going to be alone in the reality of the opposition. Second point I want to make is to continue with this idea of our companion in the work. If you'll flip down to chapter 16 of John. John 16, verse 5. Jesus is telling this last week of his life, the disciples, now I'm going to him who sent me. I'm going back to the Father, a truth that they cannot yet understand. It is, it is so painful they cannot yet hear it. So he says, yet none of you ask where you're going. Because I've said these things, you're filled with grief. And verse 7 is one of those verses in Scripture that I struggle with believing. I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Can you imagine? Jesus said, it's better for you if I leave. It ever struck you how crazy that is? Which of us who calls ourselves Christians wouldn't want to have Jesus here? I mean... I mean, that's an overwhelming thought. It's better for you if I leave. What does that say? It says how important the one who will come is. Notice what he says. It's, it's better for you if I leave because unless I go away, your attorney will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's better for us that Jesus personally isn't here because of who he sent in his place. 
the role of the Holy Spirit is beyond anything that any of us can imagine. Now hear me. Part of the reason for that is the, the Holy Spirit's ministry always points to the Son and the Father. He always brings attention to the Son and the Father. He doesn't draw attention to Himself in Scripture. He points people to the Savior. And therefore, it's easy for us to neglect the significance of His role. But Jesus says, His role in your life is so great, you're better for me. It's better for you if I don't, if I leave and He comes. When he comes, he'll convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. He will bring conviction to the world. One of the problems we get into as Christians is we start trying to be the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. You ever had those Christian friends? I'm, uh, when I first met Julie, she had, she had Holy Spirit friends in her life. They were, they were glorious. They, they meant the best, but they were, they, they, they were busy convicting each other of sin. Um, and that's so time-consuming. The, the, the problem with it is the obvious, and that is that who am I to talk to you about your sin? And Julie's the one nodding right now because she knows my sin better than anybody's, right? Well, maybe my daughter's, but they're not here. So the problem is that when we try to convict people of sin, we can easily come off as hypocrites. That's why the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts of sin because he's perfect. Now, it doesn't mean we don't speak the truth. We have a response. There was a double negative. We speak the truth in our society. We have a right to say what God's Word says is good and true. And certainly, we have a role in, in teaching our children about what is true and what is good and what is bad according to God's Word. But the, the great news is we don't have to be the one who convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit can take the Word of God and, and drill deep into a person's soul and cause them to see that sin. The first time I remember watching this happen in someone else's life, when I was in high school, or maybe junior college, I, I stayed in junior college because it was a block from my home and I could afford it. I couldn't afford to go four years. Um, and and I, I just got a conviction about a guy I'd grown up with, David. David and I known each other all our lives. We'd gone to the same church. His, his parents were really uh, uh, out a lot, and so his grandmother kind of raised him, and, and somewhere along the way, he fell into drugs, and he fell into them big time. And, and there was a Billy Graham movie showing back in the early days of the Billy Graham movies, and, and the Lord, and it's only be the Lord, convicted me to call David and ask him to go to the movie with me. And I found David in a dive that was a, a little uh, motel, and, and most of y'all aren't old enough to remember these. They were little wooden sh buildings. Each, each one was a little motor lodges in, in old Tyler, and it was really run down. And he was about 6'2", and he weighed about 125 pounds because he was doing so much drugs, especially speed, that he wasn't eating. And I remember he said, Andy, you've seen my picture in the paper. It's the police drawing because I'm doing armed robbery to support my habit. And, 
And I took, I didn't know what to say to David, but I, I took him to a Billy Graham film. And, and we went to the film, and afterwards, we went to the little Presbyterian church I grew up in, and why we went there, I don't know, but we sat on those hard brick steps in front of the church, and I watched the Holy Spirit get hold of David's life. And I didn't say anything, and the movie wasn't that good. You know what I mean? Christian movies are never great. <laughs> uh, but something got hold of David. And he cleaned up. And he lived a normal life. And he got married. And, and sadly, later in life, he fell back into drug addiction. And, and the Lord took him. But God... God spoke to David. He'd, he'd been in church all his life, but suddenly the Holy Spirit grabbed hold of David in a way that I can't explain. It certainly wasn't anything I did. And it saved his life. In fact, when I was in seminary, his par- after he died, his parents sent me a check. I think it was part of the proceeds from a little life insurance policy they had. And it was their way of saying thank you because God used you to assure us where David is now. It's the Spirit who does the conviction. And, and that's so freeing, isn't it? Luke 12, 11, Jesus says, When you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. We have a companion who, who walks with us and speaks with us and helps us in the midst of not knowing what to say. It doesn't have to be eloquent because it's God who uses it. There's a tension here. I acknowledge it between our responsibility and the responsibility of the hearer and the supernatural work of the Spirit and how all of those work together in salvation process. And I'm here to tell you by the authority of Scripture, I don't know how all that works. But I know that God sovereignly acts through the response that we have of doing God, God's commanded us to do. When we, we live out what we're responsible to do, God sovereignly works in it to bring people to himself. That's why we pray to him. That's why we offer ourselves up to him. That's how he uses us. I don't understand it, but I know it's there. Thank God it's not all up to me. So how do we talk about results? Where do results come from? If What? Is it up to me to save people? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul addresses this. Probably no greater evangelist in all of history of time because of what he accomplished besides Jesus himself than the Apostle Paul. In chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians is an amazing admission. He said, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come to you with eloquence or superior wisdom. By the way, Paul is one of many great leaders in the history of Scripture who who said, God, I don't talk good. Moses, in fact, God said, okay, Aaron can do the talking. Paul repeatedly says, I wasn't eloquent. It's not our eloquence. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim 
to you the testimony about God, what God has done. Verse 2 is amazing. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm just going to tell people about Jesus. I'm just going to tell people that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. I'm going to tell people about the way Jesus loved. That, that no one, no one was so bad that Jesus couldn't love them and die for them. I'm going to tell them that he is the eternal son of God who had everything and he gave it all up and died a horrible death on the cross so that, so that we could live in eternity with God. That's, that's all I'm going to tell people, he says. So I came to you in weakness. I came to you in fear. And I came to you with much trembling. Isn't that funny? None of us thinks of Paul in weakness, fear, and trembling because of what he accomplished, right? But see, when we go in our weakness, what does he say in Philippians? That's when we're strongest. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. He said, I just let the Spirit work. Skipping down verse 3, I mean chapter 3, verse 6, he said, I planted seeds, Apollos watered, but God's the one that made it grow, so neither who new plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God makes things grow. What are the results of evangelism? They're God's business. They're God's business. They're God's business. They're God's business. All we're called to do is what we're called to do called to live lives that represent the character of God. We're called to do the best we can in all humility to point to the person of our Savior. We're called to humbly tell others what great things God has told us and done for us. And then the Spirit will take care of the rest. It's, it's a harder time in America to be a Christian, to call out the faith. There are, there, are, there are subtle means in which we are being resisted that are new in my life. But, but we can't dare be pessimistic. We can't dare let a little bad news cause us to cower in fear. Because God doesn't call to do something and then Neglect us. God calls us to tell others about him, and then he sends his spirit to accomplish the results. We're just called to be faithful. We're just called to do the best. Kevin talked about picking up a piece of trash and God using that last week and opening up the gospel. I took a buddy to a movie. 
I mean, there are all kinds of ways that God can use little things. And we're not responsible to, to, to sell the deal, to close the deal. We're just responsible to be faithful. And isn't that great? Because it's a job that we can't do, but he can. Am I worried about where our country is? At times. Do I lose sleep over it? In all honesty, no. Because God's in control. Nothing has taken him by surprise. The only thing that should keep me awake is when I realize I haven't been faithful to what God has called me to do. And I'm going to trust him to do the rest. I have delegated it to him. Pray with me. Father, we confess that sometimes the opposition of the world so cowers us that we're not faithful to do what you've called us to do. We confess that we often neglect to depend on your spirit, whom you promised, who can do anything and accomplish your will. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful, not in eloquence or power, but in humility. Remember you. And Father, we expect to see you work. In Jesus' name, amen.